This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I love criminals and I love crime. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network. Go to michaeldeacon.com for your preferred choice of platform to hear the podcast rendition of the show. My guest tonight is David Sarita. David has worked deeply in high technology on environmental and humanitarian issues. And as a professional photographer for over 20 years, he has studied world religion, science, physics, and paranormal psychology for over 25 years on virtually hundreds of issues. Sarita conducted a deep scientific investigation into the scientific community at NASA and outside of the agency into the 1990s. Space shuttle mission video of footage of unidentified flying object phenomena. The results of that investigation led to the development of the book and documentary film Evidence, the case for NASA UFOs. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. I appreciate the efforts to show up here on a very special time. Hello to those out there listening to this on YouTube. Hi. And of course, those who will listen later on on other platforms out there. Hello to you too. Don't forget this is a call-in show. You're more than welcome to call in. That number is 760-332-8947. More time, 760-332-8947. There's that number. Go ahead and call in. Whenever you want, it's all good. Now let's get down to brass tacks now. See what's going on with David. David, is that you? Hello. I have a good microphone here, and I was trying to get off the the other microphone that was that was the computer was set up. Ah, so yes. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we got that in order. Um, it's been quite a while, David, since I last talked to you. Oh yeah, I know. Many years have gone by since we last talked. Many years. Pretty wild. I think you even talked to my wife at one point. I think I might have, yeah, maybe 2014 or 15, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's, I can't believe it's been that long, David, but I'm, I'm so glad you're here, and it's always an honor and privilege to speak to you. 
Yeah, you too. I'm, I'm, I remember our conversations, actually. Awesome. Uh, what's been going on with you first and foremost, David? Well, since it's been a long time, there, there's been huge revelations in many areas. And, and one of the, one of the areas I moved into was studying, um, sacred sites and temples, such as the Great Pyramid of Egypt, from the perspective that they're not a power source, but an actual crystal oscillator generating specific frequencies. And, and when I was doing that, I, I started doing mathematical calculations. Anyway, uh, I mentioned that I have children running around in the background. Yeah, and, and you know, matter of fact, the last time we talked, I think you were just about to have one. Yeah, and she's six now, and the new one is not even two. My so goodness. So she's, she's into everything. Yes, she, you are into everything. <laughs> so when I was doing this work, okay, so what happens in a crystal oscillator? Right. And the, is that they generate the frequencies that the different bands of radio, television, telecommunications, cell phones, satellites all run at. And then you have transistors that are also made of crystal that are semiconductors like oscillators and they, they act as both gates and amplifiers. In the early days, a transistor was an amplifier. So you had these little transistor radios that came out and they just had a few transistors in the radio, and you could amplify um, a solid-state, very weak signal, and you could hear it nice and loud instead of using tubes, you know, radio tubes. And then we went to now we have billions of micro and nanoscale, billions of a meter scale um, transistors in an Intel chip, literally billions, acting as gates and amplifiers for colors and thousands of different hues of different colors and so that's why everything from the sound to the colors and the display and everything on your computer is running on transistors so i had this theory that the temples and the great pyramid were actually cut at specific dimensions to generate specific frequencies and because that's how in the early days you would cut a crystal oscillator at a certain dimension to give you a certain range of frequency depending on how much current and voltage you you ran through the quartz you know piece of of crystal and the idea is that you see the way it works is if you have something like the great pyramid which is made out of three different types of material uh, a radioactive granite core the oswan granite which is kind of a reddish granite and then you know so what what happens is is when you have three different materials like the granite core and the two different types of limestone on the outer casing and the inner casing, you basically have the same way you would build a transistor in the early days. You would have a PNP or NPN transistor, negative, positive, negative, or a positive, negative, positive transistor. And the transistor was born right around the time of the Roswell incident, 1947, by Will Shockley, John Bardeen, and Will Bratton. It took three guys um, many years to develop the transistor. And the first transistors were like living transistors because they only worked in water, liquid living transistors. And those kind of got bypassed or they got put into a classified status. And we went with dry solid state transistors, which is where most of everything is at today. But this gets really right. interesting because you're going to, you're going to see that everything Today is about getting smaller and smaller and smaller crystal oh, yes. oscillators and transistors and therefore higher and higher frequency. 
what happens in, a, in an oscillator is the electrons get excited and carry an electromagnetic signal through the material, and the smaller it is, the higher the frequency is, because it's speed of light divided by wavelength. And then you have refractive, including a diamond, has a refractive index, which is why they're so bright, because they actually are slowing light down more than other materials, which is what makes those gems extra bright, right? Right. So you have refractive index, and so most of the calculations on a crystal include the refractive index. But I discovered taking measurements with meters is right above resistance inside the material it is the speed of white because the signal, the electromagnetic signal will carry through the air just above the material. And everyone missed that in, in solid state because they're only interested in the frequency that the material can generate within it inside of the resistance and the refractive index. For example, when light goes through water, the refractive index of water slows light down. So when you look at the Great Pyramid's dimensions and you calculate the frequencies, I'm not interested in the frequency within the material. I'm interested in the frequency right above the skin. So I take the dimensions of the capstone base of the Great Pyramid, 572-point-something um, inch, primitive inches, and I, I take the speed of light in primitive inches, so my resolutions are equal. And then I do the speed of light, in inches divided by the square perimeter of the capstone base in inches. And the number I get is the same number as the slope angle of the Great Pyramid, 5.151. It's crazy, really. Megahertz and square megahertz. And I said, that's impossible because the builders couldn't have known the speed of light to end the capstone and create the flat platform at a frequency that's equal to the slope angle, the most sacred number, the 5151. Um, 51 degrees, 51 minutes. And so therefore I said, they, this, this is proof that the builder knew the speed of light was far more intelligent. And the only, than anyone realizes, and the only reason the builder would know the speed of light and cut the great pyramid platform where it was is for the intention of creating a frequency that's equal to the slope angle. And that is in itself so iconoclastic that it should have made headlines all over the world. I mean, I've been talking about this for some years you, now. Yes, you've been talking about it for a very long time, and, and we're going to bring it all full circle in a moment here. But before we get any further, David, I, I thought perhaps you could tell us just a little bit about your background for those who are, are just tuning in now and, and have no clue who you are, David. Well, I've been... I've been speaking publicly now for 17 years, since the year 2000. And my background is, you know, growing up, I'm a, my dad moved my four brothers and I and my mom to Berkeley, California in about 1964, late. And we settled there. My dad was getting his PhD in psychology at the campus. And, and one day coming home from elementary school, I saw a flying saucer with with many, many other witnesses pounding on neighbors' doors. And in the following days and weeks, I started having dreams about these beings who showed me their star system, which they didn't call Pallades. We call it Pallades. They just showed me the diamond cluster in the sky, and that's where they were from. And then they started showing me how their spacecraft worked. And this, I mean, I'm seven years old in 1968. I'm going to be 56 this summer. And so... That's where it all kind of starts for me. And then my dad, you know, and mom divorced and my mom marries a science teacher. I was David Cooper for seven or eight years. And then my mom sends me back to my dad with my brothers. And, and that was a huge ordeal in our lives to lose our mom, you know, growing up and growing up. And, and then slowly I started 
you know, I became a tree planter. I planted 1.3 million trees in 23 years. And then I started working for physicists, making films. And, and I became, um, president of a company of a, of representing a group of very advanced Nobel level physicists. And I worked in the areas of nuclear fusion, landmine, bomb detection, contraband detection. And then I started developing my own technology, kind of like a nuclear fusion machine. It's very similar where we vibrationally program and vibrate um, crystal or jewelry pendants um, at specific frequencies that are beneficial to the human nervous system. And, and I started doing vast studies of the electricity in the human nervous system. And I would walk around in Sedona, Arizona, where we were living in those years, and with a voltmeter, and I would measure the voltage in my body um, barefoot versus wearing shoes. And I could see a very small improvement with the barefoot walking in the current in the body, the, you know, the, the current and the voltage. Correct. And, and I saw, okay, there, there's a way that a human can benefit from receiving beneficial frequency that you're in control of rather than you're not in control of. Yeah. And by the way, David, I'm sorry to cut you off, but when you were out there in Sedona, is this when you actually were during meditation? Is this when a divine being arrived to you? Well, I know I, I actually in 1994 when I was I was bankrupted by the Canadian government. Um, they stole all my earnings out of my bank account from tree planting for a whole year, and I pitched a tent on my dad's ranch in Topanga, California. Mm-hmm. In 94, in October, the rainstorms were severe, and I started getting hypothermia, and I left my body, and a crucifix appeared above the oak trees, and a baptismal pool beneath it. I was re-baptized. I was already baptized as a child Catholic, and then... I was rebaptized and I was taken above the rain clouds in, in spirit and millions of tiny balls of white like the size of atoms came rushing together from every direction of the universe and formed the body of Christ shining like thousands of our suns in front of me. And I collapsed, unable to perceive and look at Jesus's face in those visions. And that, and that marked the beginning of a series of appearances of Christ to me in over, over a course of years. And so with that, instantly uh, I was given the ability to see the dead star beings, um, spirit beings with my eyes open, not with my eyes closed, not through some sort of, you know, interior space. But I saw them, hundreds of them over the years, when all these psychics in Sedona said you're going to be having a, um, a boy. And all this, there was a little girl beside the bed. And before Alira was born, and and that's Astoria, you know, making all that noise. <laughs> yes. And running around in diapers. And so it was proof to me that what I was seeing wasn't, you know, and I had other proof that I wasn't delusional. Yeah, and you and you still haven't had any any more visions, as you said, correct? And I, and and when a spirit would appear in front of me, that was the difficult part, you know, separating me from them. And it it's ironic because in our civilization, if somebody is seeing, you know, things that they shouldn't then there has to be something wrong with them. Correct. I was getting answers mathematically to problems that were unsolvable that I could prove in a similar way. John Nash at Princeton also was having visions of parallel universes, and he was able to solve mathematical problems that nobody could solve. And and I can tell you that there's no way that a delusional person could do something like that. Correct. And then also mm-hmm. to, to get information that could be confirmed as accurate, like one, that I'm going to have a girl instead of a boy. 
I mean, you could say that's 50-50, and there's there's some pretty good odds that are either way that you could just be, you know, you could still be delusional, but maybe you just got it right by chance that you were going to have a daughter. But, it, you know, what I found is, and what psychology teaches us, if, if you study the, the works of William James, William James, my dad told me to study him because mm-hmm. he studied him at Berkeley in psychology, was the co-founder of the very first psychiatric and psychology departments at uh, Harvard, Yale. And Harvard and or Yale or both, you can Google that. And if you read Varieties of Religious Experience, William James documents the lives of saints, like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, whom Dante confirms is probably one of the most supremely enlightened Christian saints of all time. But when he was alive on earth, what James documents in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, is that is that St. Bernard would have been committed to an institution because his visions and his purgation or purging period of his of his enlightenment was so wild and crazy and screaming and seeing the land burning on fire and having visions of infernos and things that made him scream and run around like a madman. And and, and that's just your energy force awakening within you and the mind's eye interpreting it as fire when it's really just energy. And and so what's important about William James' work is that it, it really shows how unprepared we are in our civilization today to deal with anybody that will report psychic or spiritual experiences to their parents, including mine. And <laughs> right. they're perfectly level-headed, perfectly calm when they're telling you that, so that they're they're able to give us a picture of something that we don't have access to. But thankfully, like when I made movies like The Voice and Quantum Communication, right. and scientists like Gary Schwartz at to the University of Arizona Tucson, also a Harvard Yale psychologist, psychiatrist, they were able to get, uh, Gary was able to get a military camera from the military because the military kept seeing these beings showing up on the camera. And then you see all these balls of light in the crop circles and you make the connection to the spherical beings there. And then the NASA cameras that couldn't see into the ultraviolet. I made documentary films, you know, some of my first films. Yes. You can see lots of evidence of the spherical um, translucent orbs, you know, moving in and out of the earth plane. So, so then you know with those cameras, people aren't delusional. If, if an intelligence evolves to the point that you can levitate with your mind, spherical comes in when you reach that point. And three spherical beings appeared in front of me once that identified themselves from Arturus. And I had actually never heard of the star at that time. I didn't know about Arturians. I didn't even... My studies in the sciences were more in the areas of energy, free energy, Tesla, nuclear fusion, and of course right. landmine and bomb detection and some other areas. So like photography, I was an expert, you know, um, an award-winning photographer, probably the first achievement I ever had. And then I went on to making films. So when it came to science, I understood optics. I understood invisible wavelengths. I understand radio telecommunications and I understand some faster than light. Um, physics ideas that are very advanced. And so when I got into this, it was, okay, you're not going to tell me that I'm not seeing this because I can explain to a scientist what's really going on. Like one night in Sedona, um, I'm lying in bed and the neighbors are coming home late, but I can see their red brake lights through the wall with my eyes open. Whoa. And I went, 
this is impossible because you can't see anything through a wall, but why am I seeing this? And the answer is in Richard Feynman, the great Caltech physicist, um, he has a book called The Strange Theory of Light and Matter. Very small book, but very slow reading and very profound research. And, and very, very simply, when light or electromagnetism hits a wall, whether the red photons will, some will bounce off the wall and give you a, a reflection on the other side. Some will interact with the material or the, the particles inside the atoms inside the wall. And some of the photons will go through the wall. So why don't most people see somebody's red brake lights through the wall? And the answer is simple. It's because the amplitude of the light that passes through the wall is so tiny that, yes, it's going through the wall, but either my pupils are super dilated and, and can see tiny amounts of light, or there's something in my brain that is sensitive to super tiny amounts of light because I'm not seeing everything in ultraviolet. So I ruled that out that, that it's higher frequency light that I'm seeing that's invisible to the eye because most humans don't see ultraviolet light. Although, um, a few have bees can see ultraviolet light. So can some birds and some other insects can see ultraviolet light, but, but humans don't generally see it. Um, Claude Monet had an, an operation on his eye that allowed him as an artist to see ultraviolet light. And so he put a lot of violet in his, in his amazing paintings. But there are, there are a few examples, but what I was seeing was not everything in violet. So the, so it ruled out that when I would see a spirit, it was full color. Sometimes I would see hues of colors that you would never see on earth. Um, and yet they were visible to me. So what I gathered is that something happened to my brain that allowed me to see tiny amounts of light, but fully assembled. And that's where that was interesting to me, because when NASA was setting up these super low level white cameras on the space shuttle and they started seeing all these strange things on their cameras. And then Gary Schwartz's super cool infrared cameras were seeing spirit mm -hmm. phenomena then it was very clear that it was all the data was consistent, that all you needed was a camera to see. So with all that data in, I, I ruled that it was not invisible wavelengths of light. It was, yeah. it was low amplitude. And, you know, David, let, let's go back to these NASA tapes really quickly. Uh, of course, they're the most famous ones that I, I believe everyone has seen by now. Anyone who happens to type in, I guess you could say, NASA and UFOs, right after it, we'll see that footage of, uh, what was it, STS-75? Yeah, there's a lot of them. 75 was the tether incident, yes. and then you have that, that's the STS-80. There mm -hmm. was a, you see, they're very faint. In STS-80, there, there's this circle formation over oh, Africa, yes. and the very translucent disks of white stop, and they hold a position and they gather in a circle, and you can't do that with dust particles. You can't get a dust particle to travel in space and then stop, hold a position, and as soon as they hold their positions, they suddenly give off this extra luminosity. To low amplitude light is the key, and and that's where there's a wealth of phenomena going on under our noses all the time. And digital cameras will sometimes pick up a UFO or a ghost or spirit that is quite vaporous sometimes, sometimes not so clear, sometimes pretty clear. But what I saw was crystal clear. I mean, it, it is so perfect that you can see micro details in the fabric of the time period of whatever that spirit was from. 
or another star system being standing in front of me. But none of those things, when my daughter Lara was born, it was instantly over. There was no way, you know, and I've met Isis, I've met Christ at Kuan Yin, many traditional masters from different religions. I've even met Muhammad in front of me, which is quite a mind-blowing experience in Saudi Arabia when I was there. Um, but there's there's too many experiences I had with beings that are not um, of human arms and leg design. Understood. And, and none of them were terrifying. None of them were, um, except for one, was terrifying. There would be one. Uh, and that that is another story. But the, right. the bottom line is there we know there are, I'm sure when most people pass from their body, they'll be shocked at how much is really here. You can't see, it almost seems like a ripoff. You go, okay, you know, God, how come <laughs> a perceptible life anywhere else in the universe that we can see is either the greatest it's either the greatest liar, mist, or hell realm, but the lowest region of matter. And so we're isolated. We, we can't perceive anything. And I've looked at that as a question from both the um, speed of light issue, like we we observe everything in light speed at the speed that we see it. So just imagine this. Imagine mm-hmm. that our bodies, which are mostly empty space, because the atoms that we're made out of are mostly particles with empty space in between the particles, and the particle part of the wave duality of all the atoms in your body and the subatomic particles is is tiny compared to the empty space. So we're really mostly empty space, and, and although we don't perceive that. And so <clears throat> what if the rate that we're vibrating at and there the speed of light was different? And so therefore, people who have different um, resistances to to – it's kind of like refractive index. If you're underwater, light is moving slower. And if you're in a in an Einstein-Bose condensate, then you can slow light right down to almost nothing. And so, therefore, you're when you're moving due to refractive index, you're changing the speed of light. You're actually dilating time. You're manipulating time itself to have the light medium changed in velocity and our vibration rate. So I've I've designed. As a professional photographer, I did this years ago and presented it to physicists that I worked with. What if you did particle explosions at CERN? So when we talk about adding frequencies to the observation plane of a camera, so you take, you can either take a, um, a CCD and you can run frequencies through the CCD and, and run different frequencies through the CCD and see if it changes what you're able to observe. It's kind of like what would happen, what can you observe in the brain and the human eye if you, if you go into different brainwave states? And, and, and there's a lot of evidence there because I know many brainwave researchers who found that people who have, who either hear or see spirit optically, that a lot of them have the ability to go into deeper brainwave states like deep theta or deep delta. Right. And delta is normally an unconscious state. So most of us dream in theta, and the frequency of Earth at the Tesla-Schumann resonance is theta. So we dream at the same frequency of our own planet, and that's quite amazing in itself. And so I calculated based on the radius of, of all the nine planets, I calculated the different frequencies of all the nine planets, and they all correspond to the five or six different human brainwave states. And so that means that if you were in deep delta, would you, or, or, or conscious in deep delta, which most people can't do, 
would you see spirits? So I had my brainwaves mapped in Sedona, Arizona, and so did my wife, Crystal. This is years ago. And the brainwave mapper was from Canada. Mm-hmm. And he set up his apparatus in my brain, and then he was really dumbfounded because I'm sitting in meditation, fully alert. And you always have your delta, your theta, your alpha, beta, and gamma all at the same time. They're always moving. But but usually the the amplitude of each one of them varies depending on what you're doing. So in waking state, we're in, you know, beta and gamma, and gamma is peak physical brain waves, right? So up to 100 or 200 hertz. And then you get into some super gammas. But my brain had massive deltas that were hitting the end of his meter's license limit. Like he said, I have to get another license to go past this because I've never seen deltas this big, and you're perfectly fine. He said, normally when someone has deltas, you're having a seizure. But I'm not having a seizure. Oh, wow. So I said to him, watch what I'll do. Okay, so I'm going to be go in meditation, and I'm going to shift my awareness from my brain into my heart and then from my heart back into my and and then I'm able to be in control of going into deep deltas. Now babies like my, like our baby Astoria, when babies are resting or they're nursing, they go into super deep deltas. But most adults can't do this. In fact, you can only when when we're sleeping and we're completely knocked out and not dreaming, that's delta. Deep dream was sleep. But when you dream in the rapid eye maze, that's theta. You're in. The baby knows how to do this. And I know how to do it at will because I can turn it on and off. And I demonstrated this. There's nothing wrong with my brain. I can just shift into my heart and I'm in deep delta. And, and researchers were dumbfounded because they found that people who saw spirits could be awake in deep delta. Mm. Holy cow. There you go. Yes. So you're starting to see something here. A pattern that if you shift oh, yes. the frequency of the observation plane, of a human or a camera, you can alternately observe what is not normally observable. And I believe in deep delta, you can see tiny amounts of light fully assembled. Therefore, low amplitude light, just like the NASA cameras. But I was able to see it much better than those. And I believe it happens in deep delta. Understood. And and one other thing I, I did want to mention here before I forget, long ago you did tell me about a TV show that you were supposed to do with Dan Aykroyd. I, I thought we could go over that one more time. Well, I mean, I was pitching with the Hollywood company on Sunset Boulevard. It was called basically UFO Hunters. And it was not UFO Hunters. It was Chasing UFOs. And, and Patrick who did UFO Hunters with Bill Burns, was a friend of mine, and I introduced him to Dan Aykroyd and told him what we were doing. We are pitching um, Chasing UFOs. And so Pat and Bill Burns went and pitched UFO Hunters, and they sold the concept before we did. And then Dan and I were like, what happened? This was our idea. And so Bill Burns and um, and Patrick got UFO Hunters off the ground, and we didn't get our show, and we were pitching at Universal and Sci-Fi, and so that was the end of that. It, it seemed like you know, and and Pat Iskert was a, a newbie. I mean, he had no real knowledge and understanding of and cameras what, and light or what, anything. What year? What year was this, by the way? Oh, I don't know. I, I can't even remember those years. Was it early two thousand around there? Yeah, perhaps? somewhere. Somewhere 99, 2000 ish. Ah, okay. Well, maybe it was just happened to be with that certain time frame. It seems like the popularity of these types of subjects have dramatically increased. 
They have, but I've also found <clears throat> on the internet the there are so many fake UFOs. There oh, are yes. so many fake There's um, so many. In fact, there's so much fake stuff that at this point I don't even trust most of it. Like most of the I mean if once you've seen a UFO with your eyes or you've seen good photography from NASA of UFOs. Right. And you look at this footage, I mean like for example, how they move. They they don't move the way these special effects guys make these fake UFOs move. They don't move like aircraft. They don't even they're so free of gravity, they, they don't like do banking turns or any of that. So when you see these CGI banking turn UFOs, that's all aerodynamics. They're, they're, those are all fake. And the fake stuff, I mean, I know a lot of people connected in radio and TV, and some of the people running the sites with all the fake footage are making huge money, like half a million dollars a year. Oh, yes. On their YouTube channels, and they have the money to, for the fake footage, and then they get millions and millions of views. And I don't want to name names, but I believe some of the biggest names in ufology today, their stories are all fake. You know, David, it's funny that you say that because the last couple of shows, uh, I've been talking a lot about that with the guest that's on the program. It seems like there's lots of folks out there that are disingenuous. Yeah, I mean, there's good, good researchers. Owen, who is more of a historian, it's really, you can only look at really old data now to know what is real because the new stuff is, see, everybody wants fake. And, and this, this story broke on Gaim TV about the, the alien in Nazca and Peru. And I think oh, it's yes. all fake. Well, look who, look who put that out there. That gentleman, Jaime Mozan, I believe his name is, who has a track record. The gentleman out from. Yeah, I think what's happening is there's so much demand and people want to have a UFO. People who are putting up air balloons and painting things to look like UFOs and then they get footage of it. There's, it's really bad. In fact, what's, what's going on now, I mean, the, the alien in, in Peru, it, it, it's ridiculous. People think that thing is real. I mean, I just look at it and go, this is utter garbage. And it's very clear to me that Gaim is paying a huge it looks amount like of money. It looks like plaster. Plaster of Paris. And it doesn't even look old. It looks like flour and water and, and a really cheap job. I mean, it's all white and clean. It's, it's just, this is not, this isn't what a mummy looks like when you unwrap a mummy from Egypt. And even, um, you know, people like Richard Dolan and, um, the, the Black Bolt guy is also said that he thinks it's fake. And Daniel Brinkley wrote me and his sources and proof said it's fake. But, but Guy and what they're doing, and I know the owner. I used to know him really well, the owner. And I really believe that because he told me he wants to pump the channel and, and sell it. For a lot of money. And I know I'm naming a little bit of names here. This will be the end of real ufology because these people are only interested in making money. So when you're interested in making money and you have Mega Mill like the owner of Gaim has. Right. Then you can hire this scientist to say this, that scientist to say that, Dory. Make sure everyone gets paid a lot of money. And because everyone's getting paid a lot of money, and ufologists, we don't make money. Believe me, all my films. Yeah, have there's been not so much. Money. Yeah, there's not much money to be made in this field. No, they're, they're, they've all been ripped off. I mean, I make money on my technology and my vibrationally treated pendants. Yeah, on, we'll, on we'll, we'll definitely get into that. I'm not, I, my films were stolen, hijacked. I can't make movies anymore. I'm bringing up a, a good issue here, and it's it's one issue that I've talked about plenty of times here. Um, you have many of these people that are are not genuine at all in this field and are completely in it for the money. They're not exactly in it for any kind of true disclosure. 
And that's one thing I want to bring up to David when he returns here. And yes, David is having... Sitting on a story right now that is so huge. It is so huge. And it's absolutely real. And and what it is, is is proof that the Space Shuttle Columbia was shot down with most likely a demonstration weapon. Really? That is so fast and and... The way the story goes is, and, and this was known many years ago when it happened. I think it was the day when it came down. I was actually mm-hmm. lecturing in Sedona on that day. Amateur photographer in San Francisco who was taking pictures on his tripod, and it shows this incoming purple object that's chasing the shuttle, and it's coming in, and it catches up to the shuttle, hits it, and the shuttle breaks apart. Oh, wow. And what ends up happening is in this case is that the shuttle basically disintegrates and gets the guy's camera. They basically say in the San Francisco Chronicle that it was an artifact of the guy's camera or it was a lightning strike. Mm. But the problem is right. I calculate the speed of the shuttle, which is 207,000 feet above the earth doing Mach 18.3, about 12,500 miles an hour. And this thing, if it was a super lightning strike, which is very unlikely, it would have not shown up in five different shutters, um, images because it would have been instant. It would have been, and I've looked at video frames that I have of lightning on earth and you're lucky if out of 30 frames a second per second, you get the lightning in two or three frames. But this guy is manually snapping images. So he's got at least three seconds in between each shutter and this thing is gaining on the shuttle which is traveling at 12,500 <clears throat> miles an hour. And then it's the shuttle seems to go by. It misses it. It course corrects at 90 degrees. You can't turn 90 degrees at, let's say this thing is doing 30,000 miles an hour to catch up to it, right? Because it can't be doing the same speed. And then when you look at the idea that it course corrected, caught up to it, and then hit it, and then the shuttle breaks apart, it's utterly absurd to think that this thing was not a weapon. But but when you measure the speed, which I did, of all of our fastest missiles, believe it or not, the Tridents, <clears throat> the ICBMs are faster than any of the smaller missiles going down. Like a Tomahawk land attack long-range missile is 550 miles an hour, right? Right. Not very fast. And then you get um, Stingers, 750 miles an hour. Let's see, which one? The Evolved Sea Sparrow missile Maximum speed Mach 4, 2,800 miles an hour. <clears throat> Still not as fast as the shuttle at high altitude on re-entry. And then when you get to ICBMs, you get into 15,000 miles an hour. So an ICBM at 15,000 miles an hour would very slowly, like a Trident, catch up to the space shuttle on re-entry. But, um, you know, there are some very fast missiles now. But when you start going faster, you can't turn. At all. You can't do right. a 90 degree turn like we see in the photography. So what happens is my report gets the attention of an MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology alumni. I'm not going to name him. Right. And he sends me all these emails that, that include everyone at NASA at a very high level and the Air Force. And they want to see my report with the photographs because NASA, Tammy Jernigan, won't share the photographs. That's weird. He's holding them at the the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Livermore National Lab. Uh huh. <clears throat> so they want to see my report. I send them my report, and and even though she had already said it's an artifact of his camera, and I get these from an MIT alumni, and I'm I'm like, 
I can't, I can't show this to the world. If I show this to the world, you might get in trouble. I might get in trouble. Right. And I even showed them to the History Channel and they were too afraid to do anything about it. When they oh, interviewed wow. me for Ancient Aliens, mm-hmm. I gave them everything. They, they could, they couldn't do this because it proves with NASA's own cameras that the same purple incoming hit the shuttle. So the real, and, and I'm sharing them with somebody now that everybody knows. I'm not going to name him. And, and he That's knows fine. it's all true now. Mm-hmm. And this, what it does is it opens up a possibility that goes way, way back. And, and Boyd Bushfriend, everybody knows him from Lockheed Martin. Oh yes. Scientist who worked for Howard Hughes, you know, General Dynamics and Lockheed for over 20 years is, tells me on camera that a friend of his is a Navy doctor who was treating a pilot for radiation burns. What happens is, the Tesla death ray was in development at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the same place where the Roswell craft was taken. And, right. and it makes sense that they would take it there because the death ray was being developed by Tesla and the government just when Tesla was, was dying. And Tesla said it could, it could shoot down a fleet of aircraft from miles away, many, many miles away. He actually said 200 miles away. Interesting, yes. And wow. so we know that the weapon was developed. We know it's been around a long, long time. Very long. But this was not the death ray because that would be the speed of light. This thing is too slow. This thing is probably 30 to 50,000 miles an hour because it catches up to the shuttle at 12,500 miles an hour very quick and course corrects at 90 degrees, which no physical missile could do. That's only something that, it, that uh, you know, the G-forces on a turn like that would, you know, destroy the it missile. Would, and, the, yes. and aerodynamics of missiles can't make 90-degree turns at that no. speed. Now, early in their flight, they can they can adjust their their maneuvering and their angle, but they once they're going that fast, you you can't you can't turn. Maybe no. at seven hundred miles an hour, you might have some fancy turns, but not at thirty, forty thousand, possibly fifty thousand miles an hour. And so, because I have confirming photos from NASA, and I've already delivered them to somebody really huge in this movement, they're in the they're in good hands. Like, if, if we shot down the Roswell craft with a weapon even more advanced than this in 1947, and this thing is slower than a speed of light beam weapon, then what is it and why was it used and was it us on Earth giving a, a demonstration to the president of the United States to show him we have weapons that people couldn't even believe and here's, we're going to sacrifice everybody on that space shuttle, or was it ETs? And is it possible the weapon was demonstrated to to prove to the president that we could fight ETs if they were to come in and take over, you know, our airspace? Well, it gets more, it gets even more um, interesting than even that, because because Howard Hughes was actually sent to Vegas to have close access to Area 51 in the Roswell craft. And... He was not in Vegas to party. <clears throat> he was right. there, so he would fly direct to the Area 51 every day. And I knew very close aides to Howard Hughes personally, who have all since passed away. And I even asked Glenn Seaborg, right near Area 51. Sorry, when I asked Glenn Seaborg, who's one of the fathers of the atomic bomb and Nobel Prize winner with Macmillan for the discovery of, of the plutonium isotope that led to the bomb, about Howard Hughes, he got so mad he started shaking, and he said he almost ended our atomic weapons testing, you know, and he said, damn him. <coughs> and the the, the yeah. close aide to Howard Hughes, John Meyer, told me, who was living in exile in Canada, 
that there was nothing wrong with Hughes. That was an actor they had in there. The reason nobody saw him is because it wasn't him. He locked himself in the room because it wasn't Howard Hughes. The real Hughes was going to Area 51, and Hughes was involved in this in the weapons. Now, one day, I'm in Los Angeles, and I get a call from Rand Corporation, and Rand Corporation is where John Nash worked, and, you know, the movie Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. Oh, yes. <clears throat> and this woman doesn't know how to use a very simple um, program called Adobe InDesign to make a brochure. And this is a military, top-secret clearance place. And they see, they look at my Canadian passport, let me in, and I'm, I'm, and it's a brochure on how to use what looks like a Star Wars laser machine gun. No bullets, no munitions, but a beam operates the weapon. This was handheld beam weapons, like the, you know, the clones in Star Wars use those, you know, those guns and they shoot out the oh, little yes. So, We've got things people can't even imagine. I saw this with my own eyes, and I've never testified to anybody that I saw it. But when I started putting things together about what happened to the Space Shuttle Columbia, I realized, you know, I'm sitting on the story of the century here, and I've got these photographs. I'm not going to make a movie and do all this work, and then everyone's going to steal it and put it on YouTube, and, <laughs> and, yes. and I'm not going to make a penny off of it because – why? Because it's a freaking year's work to make a good movie and do all the narration and all the music and all the editing and all. Yeah. The... And, and you know what, David? Let me just ask you now, since we're talking about this on the subject of disclosure, are, are we really going to fully get disclosure? Is that really? Well, you're going to get happen? it from people like me. And then you have. Well, sure. And Stephen Greer and many other, you know, Richard Dolan. And numerous, numerous good, original, long-time ufologists. But when you see all this fake, sensational garbage everywhere. That's what's hurting, what gonna, yeah. What it's going to do is bury the movement. Everyone's going to laugh. And then when they see it's fake, they're going to go, it's all fake. And I don't even want to look at any of it anymore because there's so much fake stuff. How do you know what's fake and what's real? It's just like crop circles, right? You have the real crop circles. Well, this story's fake, that story's fake. So it's all got to be fake. And that's how lazy people are in their investigations nowadays and on the internet that, and everybody just wants to see a 10 second story and go on to the next 10 second story, the next second 10 second story. Nobody wants to read a book and a full report. Oh, want to not watch a two hour documentary. Not ever. They want, no, it's all, those days are gone. It's tidbit, tidbit, tidbit. Well, oh my God, there's an yeah. alien in Peru. Great. Um, there's, there's <laughs> aliens on Mars. There's that, that's, that's the ADD <laughs> in civilization now. Yeah, well, they they want to know everything that's going on in the world and tiny little bits, and they don't want an in-depth of anything. And the problem with good ufologists is they're so thorough at separating the the fake story from the real story. And and I'll give you another example. There's you know Jim Delatoso was a special effects um, uh, guru and teacher in Hollywood, and Jim contacted me about the Billy Meyer case. Years ago, we were on the phone about this, and I said, how come you <laughs> right. got photos that I can – Shirley MacLaine and Lee and Britt Elders were basically had to submit to Jim both real and fake images from the Meyer case, and he had to determine which ones were fake and which ones were real. <clears throat> and all the images ended up everywhere. So everybody thinks they're all part of the Meyer case, but they're not. They're, the, Billy Meyer doesn't speak English. Right. I have in my possession full, highest, highest resolution copies that were sent to me by Meyer himself when I was making my documentaries 
of the real ones and the fake ones. But Meyer only sent me the real ones. I had to get the fake ones from somebody else because he didn't send me the fake ones, the wedding cake and all those ones. And as a professional photographer, one of the things you do is basically it's called a, a test on the focal length and the distance an object is to 35 millimeter film point. And basically what you do is, for example, if I take a picture of a Rolex watch and I, I hang it on a string and put it in front of the camera and make it look like it's floating there, the details are phenomenal because it's close to the camera. But if I have a 30-foot UFO that is 100 yards away from the camera and I take a picture like Miter did with an Olympus camera, 35 millimeter, and then I zoom in on it, my my fine details are all broken up. And that's because it's truly far away from the camera. Right. And by the way, have you have you spoke to yeah. Michael Horn? Sorry to cut you off there. Oh yeah, no, he doesn't even know. My, Michael doesn't even know this. Oh, he doesn't. I, yeah, he's he was over at my place in Santa Monica. I mean, he figures he knows everything about Myers, so there was no way I was going to tell him this. Understood. <clears throat> so what happens is the wedding cake, for example, Myers photo is totally fake. It means spray painted golf balls and. And it, it's such a fake UFO. It is not a Meyer UFO. It, it is it is fake, and it was done intentionally. And Jim Dillatoso told me the same thing that I knew, that when an object is close to the camera, it has super fine resolution of detail. When it's far away, with the grain in the film, and you zoom in, the, the fine details are all broken up. And then you can measure the, the estimated size based on how far away it is in the film plane, how big the thing really is. And and these things were really 30 feet wide and hovering above the ground. And, and you couldn't get a balloon 30 feet wide full of air and lift it up in the sky with some helium and take a picture of it with a one-armed farmer. Right. And then you would have to hide the balloon. I did this funny photo shoot because my, my parents owned this company called Hotskins Bodywear. And, you know, I discovered Pamela Anderson. And she was our first model. And Hulk Hogan used to model for us. And he had this T-shirt on saying New World Order, NWO. <laughs> yes. Wiggles his fingers. And we, I made this UFO and I put um, spray painted golf balls on a trash can lid and we threw it in the background back and forth. And we got a nice blur on it and it looks like a UFO going by behind him. <laughs> we used this in a catalog. It was oh very my. funny. <laughs> and Sounds funny. That's the kind of that's the kind of photography you'll see with even in the old world fake UFOs were just trash can lids and things like that thrown in the background. Oh, by the way, are you familiar with uh Jim Mars? I heard he just passed away. He just yeah, I was gonna say he just passed away. I just discovered that right now. No, him and I My goodness. never connected, you know. Um believe it or not, it's sad that most UFOlogists are isolated lumps of clay <clears throat> who don't talk to each other. Totally. I, I agree one hundred percent. You know, myself on CNN, Anderson Cooper, as soon as Steve Bassett needed to get on CNN, I called CNN and said, have Steve Bassett on, and they did. You know, and I opened the door to CNN for Steve Bassett. I got John Hutchison on Art Bell in the early days and George Norrie. I used my connections to help. So the, the thing about the Space Shuttle Columbia is is so massive because when you have absolute proof that Tammy Jernigan is lying, saying it's an artifact of his camera, because you have NASA cameras showing the same thing going into MIT. This is going to blow the lid off something. Something called mm -hmm. kinetic weapons, too. And a kinetic weapon will deliver an electric charge to the target. But it's a physical munition, like a bullet. And it will hit the target, 
transfer an electric charge, and the electric charge will pry all the circuitry in the aircraft or the missile. But again, because they're physical, they can't make turns like that. I mean, a ball munition, if it had thrusters in it, could make a high-speed turn, if it's just spherical. But if it's tubular, yeah, like it's a, a different ball, story. It couldn't turn. It yes. would just start spinning out and and go out of control. And this thing hits the shuttle. I mean, you can see it. The amateur photographer's photographs are closer. The NASA camera photographs are further away because they, they shot it at a steeper angle. They probably shot those photos from Texas and a very, very long, steep angle or maybe from a different base that NASA has. But nevertheless, it shows the same thing. It shows the same color, purple incoming, chasing and then hitting the shovel. I think I think I have three or four shots from NASA of it, and I have the original five shots from the amateur photographer shots. And he tried to lock up his photos and say, you know, nobody's allowed to use my photos. You can't publish these. And and that's just a bunch of garbage because it's it's a public event. It, this is NASA's spacecraft which is technically the property of all americans and actually canadians because there's a canadian pilot on there so you can't hide your photographs of an event of that kind of implication they need to be studied and analyzed so i have all the photos and and hopefully you know this person that i want to partner with is going to do something big about it and i hope so yeah that sounds very interesting then uh, and everyone will see it it'll be another awesome Ten-minute news story for the day on YouTube, and then <laughs> on to the next thing. But I think people are more taken by the fake stuff because it's more oh, yeah. like a Hollywood movie. It's, it's more sensational. Lo- lots of clickbait out there, no doubt. Yeah, and you so know we're gonna have a fake world. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to mention this article here. I'm sure you might have seen it. Did you happen to come across this uh, article about the Chinese? The scientists were able to teleport a photon from Earth to orbit. Did you happen oh, yeah. to see that? Oh yeah, no. That's, imagine if you can have one central brain, a real brain, that can have digital copies of itself projected out at different points. Like for example, imagine a digital copy of you walking around on Mars. The telecommunicates with your brain. Chinese scientists were using an experimental satellite, and I believe they were testing the whole quantum entanglement, and they did this over unprecedented distances, beaming entangled pairs of photons to three ground stations across China. And these were separated by long, vast distances, and it's, it's incredible, really. Who knows what the hell is going to happen? We have all this great technology coming to the forefront here, and the implications are, are pretty outstanding, uh, to be perfectly honest with all of you out there. This is a giant leap forward. It really is, and, and, and my newest work is, like I said, calculating the frequencies of the Great Pyramid because I believe the frequencies are door openers to an experience. I actually calculated, I take the, the circle, of um the the megalithic site in Ireland. I'm trying to remember the name of that really big circle. Um I just did it the other night. And I took the the diameter of the circle times pi to get the distance around the circle and the speed of light divided by that and I got one point one one megahertz. And I'd already done a mathematical study on Alexander Thom's megalithic yard approximately eighty three centimeters and the megalithic yard was never fully resolved perfectly. And that's because the erosion of, of, of megaliths doesn't allow you to see it perfectly, but it's somewhere 
from my memory in the 83 centimeter range. And when I, I, I only had to adjust it by a smidgen to take the diameter of a megalithic yard times pi, the distance around a circle, the speed of light divided by that, and you always have to have the speed of light in the same resolution of your measuring. And I got one, 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 one. Um, so it was, I think it was gigahertz. So 1.111111 gigahertz. And all these ones, like perfect, perfect, like 1111. Like how could the speed of light divided by the largest megalithic site in Ireland produce 1.11 megahertz? And how could a megalithic yard produce 1.1111 gigahertz? And the ones just kept going. I said, there, there's clear math here to prove what's really going on. And why is Stonehenge at 51 degrees in one minute? The same number as the slope angle of the Great Pyramid, and why is why are all the crop circles in England in the 51 degrees and 51 minute bandwidth? You know, and London is is built on the 51 degree. So you you have all all of this happening right under our noses in code, and like it's a language, like Area 51. There it is. So there's and there's a video I have on my YouTube channel. My channel is um, Spaceman 99 David Sarita. Just just Google. My name and Spaceman 99 and you'll see the music scale of the Great Pyramids and listen to it with headphones. So you, you're going to listen to our music scale. You te- you get a tone generator, plug in the numbers of our ABCDFG and the flats and sharps and you turn on A at 440 hertz and BCDFG and you're going to hear them distort. They'll start to wobble. And even if you remove the flats and sharps, the seven tones distort. And then I got a hold of the the famous Colt 432, and I I found the 432 scale and tone tested it, and you'll see this in the video, and it's worse. It it distorts worse than our scale. And then I tested solfeggio, but solfeggio is not a music scale. It's only nine tones, and it was much better, but it distorted after the fourth note. And then I tested the classical 444 scale, and it was actually the worst. And then when I test the pyramid scale, it's perfect. And I can shift octaves on the pyramid scale up or down, and I can retone test, and it still doesn't distort. But my octave is not a traditional Pythagorean times two; it's times the golden ratio. And and so if I go down golden ratio or up on my main pyramid ten tones, I get a total of 120 tones times three scales is 360 tones, which is just on no distortion. None of the Ascension descending tones distort. So whatever, whoever designed the Great Pyramid knew what is probably truly the music scale of the angels and God. And, and I argue in, in our new book that my wife Crystal and I finished, um, a year ago, God's Great Pyramid, that this, the Great Pyramid was, was not designed by Cheops or any Egyptian at all. And it's, it's, it's most likely the music scale of the angels and God. And the, the the mathematics of Solomon's Temple, the Ark of the Covenant, all of it is all the same code language as the Great Pyramid. Yes. So it, it's obviously the same designer. And that and that's you know it's I know everyone's scared of math. Nobody has time. For it. <laughs> right. But it's multiplication and division and subtraction are all you need to know to read this book on my website at davidsarita.net. Yes, so and that's... Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about your pro. But uh, another awesome little fact there, of course, are those megalithic structures all all under Orion's belt. Mm-hmm. Four different megalithic structures, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, it, you have... When you create 
crystal oscillators that vibrate in the ratio of the appearance of the position of stars. See, this is really interesting. When you, oh yes, if you were to look at Orion's belt between Earth and Orion's belt, those three will appear in that configuration. But if you were on a different planet looking at Orion's belt, they would appear in a different, you know, just like Correct. when you look at the 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 purple incoming wave hitting the space shuttle from San Francisco. And then you look at the same thing, you know, from another camera by NASA in Texas or somewhere else. It's going to look different because the angle's different. But what I discovered is the is the arrangement, just like in a musical arrangement of musical notes or frequencies, is very similar. Is in that the arrangement makes it proprietary and unique between Earth and Orion's belt. And so as a series of resonances, that arrangement only exists between the observer Earth and the observer Orion's belt. And when that resonance goes out as a vibration, the universe doesn't get it mixed up that that arrangement only exists vibrationally between Earth and Orion's belt. So it opens up a portal of energy between Earth and Orion's belt and nowhere else. By the way, and you, the, oh, yeah. sorry to cut you off there, but you the also. The reason why it's nowhere else mm-hmm. is just like in a radio tuner and you tune to this station and that station, no two planets are the same wavelength and no two stars are the same wavelength. So every star has its own frequency. So when you tune to the frequency of that star, you only communicate with that star and not some other mixed up one because there's only one other star. It's that exact dimension and wavelength. Yes. And I was able to get NASA data on Pleiades, Sirius, Orion's belt, all of them. They know the radius. And once you know the radius, you can figure out the wavelength and the frequency, generate the frequency, and transmit it through our Lightstream wands, which we have at davidstreeta.net or my coils, and it can open up an experience. And I know this sounds really exotic, but but I really believe this is how faster-than-light communication works between us and other star systems is it's about getting the same ratio and harmonics and and frequency and yes then you end up opening up faster than light communication with that star with yourself and and i had dozens and dozens of experiences over the years with targeted locations Pleiades, sirius orion and spica and 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 then when I don't use my device, nothing happens. I mean, I meditate every day. Mm-hmm. I can get into high bliss states and high states of love, but I never have experience. Understood. It, it, it only happens when I'm using those frequencies. So yes. one of my goals with my users, because we have about 300 plus users of our technology in the world, is to say, let's pick targets. Like, let's pick one of Jupiter's moons and do that frequency for a month and see what everybody experiences and collect all the data. So it's kind of like remote viewing with yeah. I was just about to say that, but also another thing that just popped into my mind. You've also mentioned Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock, and you've disagreed with them saying that the Egyptians were making maps of the stars. You you don't agree with that, correct? Well, there's no reason to make a map alone. You're making a vibrational map mm-hmm. because you're making these pyramids out of huge amounts of semiconductive material as opposed to what we do today, I was mentioning, is everything's getting smaller, so right. using less and less semiconductive material. So your vibrations are getting higher frequency, but your amplitude is dropping, and nobody makes giant oscillators anymore. I mean, in the early days, oscillators were pretty big, you know, as big as your thumb, 
But I believe the Egyptians made oscillators at enormous sizes for a very good reason. Well, there's the, there's the pyramid. There's the pyramid. Giant oscillator right there. It's not just for telecommunication. It's, I believe when you're spinning that many electrons at that harmonic ratio that you can probably physically teleport. Yes. Uh, That, that just, that just opens up even more questions. Why on earth were the Egyptians building such a, giant oscillator for because they could physically teleport and and because Stargate, yes the oscillators contain countless billions of electrons versus the tiny oscillators we make today so nobody knows today what happens when you build big oscillators because nobody makes them um but there were in the early days of radio for example tesla is the true father of radio demonstrating at the chicago world's fair in 1893 and, and Sir Oliver Lodge, who was also a mystic, and Stone were co-credited in the U.S. Patent Office as co-creators of radio with Tesla, ruled June 21st, 1943, against Marconi, wireless telegraph, that they are all the true fathers of radio. But Tesla, that he was getting radio messages from both Venus and Mars, and he used a different kind of radio. See, people think radio today is the same as it was back then, and and when Tesla said that he was receiving messages from Mars, I'm not certain that the Roswell aliens were not prompted by Tesla. Mm, yeah. Because his lab was in Colorado Springs where he was doing these experiments. And if he sent out a long wavelength signal, even even an eighth the diameter of the Earth, and some of his fast, he, he actually demonstrated faster than light calculations of signaling, but he didn't use electromagnetic waves. And then basically the, the Roswell, you know, incident occurs in New Mexico, not far south, you know, from Colorado Springs is the whole band of where the saucers were chased and then shot down, according to Boyd Bushman's story. So it's very possible like, for example, in this new MJ-12 document, and everybody thinks it's fake, but it, it, it's, it claims that the aliens who speak our language, it claims that they received a radio signal somewhere in this area. And there was only one person doing radio signals, um, they said, 50 years ago. It was in the MJ-12 document recently. And 50 years ago would have been around the time of Tesla's experiments in Colorado Springs, late 1800s, early 1900s. So Roswell's 1947. Tesla's doing radio in the late 1800s. So 50 years later puts you right on target, right? So Correct. that's what the MG12 document, new one, says. So everyone thinks it's fake because the document doesn't look real. But see, that's one way you can discredit a document. All you got to do is know that a document got leaked that you don't want out. So you circulate a fake one that everyone knows is going to be fake. And therefore, everything that it says in the document must be fake. Because the document isn't real, but the real one got out, so they did a cover story, and they blew the whole thing. So that's how fake news ruins real news. Yes. So fake fake ufologists and fake stories. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's kind of the way it goes. So what if Tesla prompted them? And, and as Tesla stated, the messages came from Mars. So what if the Roswell aliens were grays that were only stationed on Mars at that time, and they got a signal from Mars, but they don't live there. They're just... Stopping over, just like, you know, the dark side of the moon and the aliens on the dark side of the moon and Neil Armstrong and his stories about why he went silent the rest of his life. And, you know, I see here's what I believe on the moon landings. Yes, Go ahead. there were sounds, there were sound stages, there were fake broadcasts. All of our broadcasts were fake, 
but NASA was really there. And what the astronauts saw, they would not allow us to see. And the reason they hired Hollywood to do the fake broadcast and the and the fake moon in Flagstaff, Arizona, because they knew what they were going to see was not something they wanted the public to see. Why do you think Edgar Mitchell became a strong proponent of UFOs? Because he couldn't tell us what he saw on the moon, and neither could Neil Armstrong, which is why he went silent. So, again, again, how do you ruin the real story? You make a fake one. So when everybody figures, they see the Coke bottle in, in, you know, the Australian broadcast, they see a Coke bottle floating by during the the lunar walking. By the way, we're we're talking about the whole Michael Collins uh, fake photos, correct? Yeah, the the fake Those were staged, yeah, clearly. That was done intentionally because they didn't want you to see the real moon. And they saw aliens there. Right. They don't want you to know that. So they knew we would figure out the whole thing was fake. I, I've met Buzz Aldrin. You know, I met him. He, he worked with Maglish on the Helium 3 Fusion and he's a funny guy. And, and we've talked on the phone a number of times and, and I can tell by his voice and his comical, he, he told me he saw things out there they couldn't explain, but he wouldn't say that it was aliens. He told me. Yeah, I see. But he's laughing and he's, he said we all kind of laugh at Edgar Mitchell. And it's like, why the humor? Like, what are you guys hiding? And Mitchell, did not like me because he didn't like he, you. He didn't like me because oh Mitchell knew he protected NASA. David, you're like one of the most likable people I've ever talked to. But Mitchell didn't like. Me. Wow. And because he 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 would tell you the truth about UFOs, but he will never let anybody know what NASA. Oh, I see. Because I was probing there, mm-hmm. he got really angry, and that's because he does he doesn't want you to know. I mean, they all did a good job. On the moon cover. I mean, I was a kid. I grew up in the Barry in the sixties. I watched every mission and, and later when I became a photo, you know, darkroom expert mm-hmm. and I started, I started taking some of the scans of the NASA images of the moon and then you just keep brightening, brightening them up in Photoshop and then you'll start to see things in the sky, you know, in the black right. structure and, and that's film. I'm sorry, but that's film. And and digital, you might see some digital artifacting. But when you scan a black and white negative from a Hasselblad, which is super high resolution, Hasselblads. Oh, so my. anyway, imagine this: that all the astronauts, you know, they're they're all going to die with their secret, and the world will be convinced that we never went to the moon. Yeah. And they did their job. They covered it up. They're one thing about the moon I know is, you know, and because I worked in the area with Magwitch and all these Nobel Prize winners on helium-3 based f- nuclear fusion, is that helium-3 produces more energy than uranium per fuel weight as an energy source. But there's no harmful radiation from helium-3 fusion. And Clinton Ashworth was a supervising mechanical engineer at Pacific Gas and Electric, the San Francisco Bay Area, he told me in this long interview, that one space shuttle cargo bay full of moon dust has enough helium-3 in it to meet the energy demands of the entire country from all sources of energy for a whole year. So trips to the moon for moon dust would be very valuable because you could power the whole country for a whole year, all the vehicles, all heating all the homes, cooling all the homes for a year on one load of moon dust. So the the aliens that were mining the, the moon dust were there to get the helium-3 to run their fusion Reactors and Maglitch knew um, how to create helium three based fusion, but the conspiracy against helium three fusion and I spoke in Congress in 1993 was so vast that even Al Gore would not even attend the hearings on helium three fusion. 
because it, it's a huge, huge secret. You you could make a helium three power cell with a battery that would run an electric car for like ten years. Oh wow! You wouldn't even need to recharge. You know, I always wonder why on earth are we still using this archaic technology today, these fossil fuels, when we could be using something a lot easier. Well, Elon Musk and Tesla Motors is using the lithium cells, but eventually they'll go actually go on to non-radioactive nuclear cells. And have you gonna... ever, by the way, David, have you ever been inside one of those Teslas before? Oh, yeah. They're, really. They are amazing, aren't they? I want one. If somebody else I love it. I would love it if you would. Oh my God. You know, David, I'm not much of a car guy. I've never really been. I I don't really care. However, when I got inside a Tesla, that's a game changer. Yeah. When my wife, holy crap. Um, a psychic told her, when you see his car, you know, don't leave because of what he drives. And I I drove a gray old beat up Toyota Corolla. And yeah. my my wife, you know, went, the psychic was right. His car isn't very nice. <laughs> it was really junk. And But we, you know, fell in love and had our babies and, and, yeah. and we're dealing with a lot of stuff. But I want to say about the moon, you know, I love those. I love Edgar Mitchell. He's up there in the stars. And, and whatever happened, knowing how corrupt our government is, not one of you would tell us the truth about what you saw in a full disclosure. Because Buzz Aldrin is one of the astronauts left alive. and. And the, the lunar horizon is if he's superimposed, which he is, over this fake lunar landscape. That's not real. None of that is real. But they were really there. So mm-hmm. why don't we, will we ever see real photography of what they saw? Ever. And is the reason we won't go back there and we haven't gone back there because cameras are so much better today and they could never hide it this time. Correct. Is that, is that why we don't go back there? And, I believe we're already on Mars and that there are, there are very old humans races that, that live on Mars still underground. I believe that is happening. I've seen enough data to see. I don't just say things like I'm a psychic channeler. I look at years and years of data and then I come up with a yeah. statement like that. And I, then you have to fulfill mm-hmm. it. Understood. You know, I, I talked to a man named Robert David Steele not long ago, former CIA uh, agent there, and he talked about there being people on Mars, basically. And uh, he said some other things, but yeah, that that was one of them. And coming from him, that that's kind of wild stuff there. Yeah, I mean, Boyd Bushman told me things when he was <clears throat> still alive that are so remarkable. And I have kept all my emails from him. And, of course, I could write a book about it, and it'll end up on the Internet. It'll and end up as an e-book. I just can't do it anymore because I have children. And it's really sad that nobody will support me to make a film anymore nobody you know well see this is where i think you're wrong just, david it won't happen they, they won't are, do are it. you they, sure david have people, you have you tried pitching any oh, new yeah. any new I've ideas done, i've done fundraisers and raised fifteen hundred dollars like you, sorry i can't make a movie for that much stephen greer can raise three hundred thousand dollars but i can't raise more than five thousand we, we can't get you, you can't, we, we can't get you on tv somehow well there, i i've had Networks promise me my own show so many times, and then you, when you they find out what I really know, they're too scared. They'd rather go with a fake guy because they know it's fake. And yes, David, I do want to thank you very much for being on the program. Uh, any last words? Go ahead and say that now and well, plug support, away. I'd really like you know a lot of support right now. We're in kind of a low point, and if you go to davidserita.net and look at the vibrationally treated pendants, 
which when you wear them, they share these harmonic vibrations with your nervous system with tremendous benefit and protection from EMF and other uh, magnetic field pollution. And then we have the transmitters and the healing device. That's wand. the light stream wand, yes. That they're yeah. transmitting great. Uh, pyramid and frequencies for healing. People have been cured of all sorts of disease with those, plus they can induce experiences. And then we have my meditation course on flash drive, the tones, and the acupuncture gem lasers, so you're getting real ruby or sapphire light into your meridians. We have a lot of exciting products, so just go spend some time on my site, David Sarita is S-E-R-E-D-A dot net, and, and that's how we make a living and awesome. keep our little family alive. Very nice, very nice. And of course, inside those quantum satellites are lasers and uh, special crystals. That's right. Go figure. So David, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the program and we'll definitely touch base in the very near future. Okay. Thank you, Michael. All right, David. Take care. And that was David Sarita. I do want to thank you again for being here with me. That concludes tonight's broadcast. If you enjoy this program and want to help keep the program moving, go to michaeldeacon.com. Donate some money there. Go ahead. A few dollars, a dollar or two. I appreciate it. Also, this program completely depends on all of you out there listening. Don't just sit there. Tell a friend. Share the show. I'll be back Saturday night. Don't worry. I won't be gone for too long. I'm Michael Deacon. Thanks for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time. Good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like a very How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Hogan right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 726. I'm gonna keep it real. A lot of good content. A lot of, a lot of cool topics. You know, I, yeah, I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. You guys are, you guys are really Yeah, Mr. Rusev. That son of a bitch. I, I like that, man. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the bud, and there's a bitch. You don't see having your pump. Oh, well, the fact that I'm in for that, I think I'm in for that. Well rounded, yeah. The greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what? Flawless victory.